can open up your Bibles once again this morning to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 6. As a people, as a church that believes the Bible, we know we have to be willing to affirm and uphold everything that the Bible says, even the things that are offensive. We can't compromise at any point. We have to, as faithful followers of Jesus, if we're going to be honest about what the Bible says, we have to proclaim to the world the reality, the hard reality, the painful and offensive reality of sin and judgment and hell. We have to be willing to say, because the Bible says, that abortion is murder, that marriage is one man and one woman, that gender is a biological reality that is fixed at birth. And no matter how much scripture rubs against the grain of culture, it's nevertheless absolutely authoritative. We believe it is universally and eternally binding because it is God's word, it is what he says. So we can't pull any punches. We can't sanitize the message. We declare God's truth, sharp edges and all. This is sometimes hard for the world to stomach. But the same scripture applies to us as well. We have to be willing to sit underneath God's word. We have to come under this same authority. And just as much as the Bible has things to say that are hard for the world to hear, sometimes the Bible has things to say that's hard for us to hear. It's sort of easy for us sometimes to band together, bang our swords against our shields. But are we willing to take our own medicine? to sit underneath the authoritative word of Jesus Christ. Perhaps one of the most demanding of these hard sayings is found in Jesus' sermon on the plain. It's the parallel to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Luke's version is shorter. And we began last week by looking at these beatitudes. Blessed are you who are poor, who are hungry, who weep. Blessed are you when people revile you and hate you. Your reward is great. Jesus says the kingdom of God is yours. He says, woe to you who are rich, who are full now, you who laugh now. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Jesus says there's a great reversal that is coming. But then he begins to instruct his disciples in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil." Perhaps the most crucial mark of a genuine Christian, someone who really knows Jesus, is love. 
We're called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're called to love our brothers and sisters in the church. And, Jesus says, we're even called to love our enemies. We're called to love those around us who are in need. This kind of love, the kind of love that Jesus calls us to today, it's not natural. It doesn't come easy for us. And it's it's somewhat countercultural to love like this, but this kind of love, the love that marks us as children of our Heavenly Father, is the love that Christ commands. True disciples are to display an extraordinary kind of love. I want to look this morning at three descriptions of the love that Jesus says should mark his followers. The first we find in verse 27 through 28. The kind of extraordinary love that should mark and characterize true disciples is, first of all, a love that seeks the good of our enemies. Jesus says, love your enemies. Just to remember where we're at in this sermon, Jesus already laid out the blessings of God's grace for those who come to him. That's verses 20 through 23. Blessed are you, Jesus says. He starts with good news. He starts Before he tells us to do anything, he starts by telling us what God is doing. He starts by preaching grace. But here in verse 27, Jesus is shifting gears. He's moving from what you might call the indicative, what is true, to the imperative, what we are supposed to do. This is our response to God's grace. Because of who God is and what God is doing, because of the gospel, This is how we are to live. He's shifting from God's promises to our personal responsibilities as recipients of God's grace. As those who are blessed, as those who are citizens of the coming kingdom, how are we supposed to live? Jesus knows his disciples will be hated and reviled by the world. He talked about that in verses 22 through 23. And Jesus says that instead of returning the favor, instead of responding in kind, to that sort of treatment. We, as followers of Jesus, are called to love our enemies. The word for love here is agapao. It's not the word for romantic love. It's not even the word that's used to describe the love of friendship. It's really the most open-ended kind of love. It, it simply means a desire for the well-being of another. It's a sense of goodwill towards the other person. The New Testament takes this somewhat generic word of goodwill towards others, a desire for their well-being. The New Testament takes this word and fills it with meaning. The New Testament authors, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, will use this word to describe the unconditional love that God has for us, to describe the radically sacrificial love that Jesus demonstrates towards us as sinners, even though we don't deserve that love, have done nothing to earn that love, even though we've shown the opposite of love, to him. It's a love that's not based on the worthiness of the beloved. It's a love that is sourced in the heart of the lover. And Jesus says we are to love our enemies in this way. We're to seek their well-being and desire their good, to have a heart of care and concern for them, even though they don't deserve it. And this heart of love is expressed in several ways. Look in verse 27. He says, love your enemies. And then he starts to unpack what that means. He says, Do good to those who hate you. The kind of love we're to express towards our enemies is not merely a love that stays at the realm of our attitude. 
It's a love that's expressed in action. He says, do good to them. He says, bless those, verse 28, who curse you. Rather than invoking God's judgment on them, there should be rather an appeal to God on their behalf, wishing them the best, speaking words of grace, not cursing them. He continues, verse 28, pray for those who abuse you. This love for our enemies is expressed in crying out to God and asking for God's mercy upon them, seeking that God would work in their life for their good. Consider the example of our Lord Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. Jesus did not curse. He did not revile. He did not cry out to God to judge and destroy them. He could have summoned 10,000 angels to do exactly that. Instead, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the kind of love that we are called to. We see the same kind of love in the death of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Stephen was the first member of the New Testament church to be put to death for the sake of Christ. After preaching to the religious leaders, they begin to stone him. In Acts chapter 7, verse 60, he falls to his knees and cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless them. Do not curse. Pray for them. At this point, we might ask a question. Well, don't the Psalms have these imprecatory prayers? How does that fit with what Jesus is saying? There's these psalms that do cry out for God's judgment and, and for destruction to be brought to God's enemies. How do we fit these two different passages together? Is Jesus canceling that out or contradicting that? Well, I don't believe so for two reasons. Number one, we have to remember the context of what Jesus is talking about here. And I believe the context is specifically about persecution for the sake of Christ. Remember verse 22 and 23. Blessed Are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man? That's very important. That's the header under which Jesus is talking about this topic of those who treat you as enemies and mistreat you. It's because of their loyalty to Christ. It's because of their proclamation of the gospel. It's because they're following Jesus that they are experiencing this kind of abuse. We're to love those who persecute us, to bless them, to pray for them. Jesus is not saying that we cannot rightly take up and use the imprecatory psalms in the case of abortion providers or traffickers, evil political leaders, terrorists. There is a proper place and a time for appealing to God for justice, appealing to God to protect the innocent, appealing to God to uphold his standard of righteousness in the world. There is a time and a place for that. So I don't think Jesus is canceling out the imprecatory Psalms. Secondly, I think a second reason why he's not doing that is that if you go back and study those Psalms, those Psalms that do cry out for God's justice, you'll notice those Psalms are not driven by a heart that craves personal vengeance. That's important. Those psalms are not crying out because we desire retribution, because they are our enemies that have wounded us, mistreated us. No, those 
Those imprecatory psalms are really God-centered prayers. It's not about us. It's about him. It's about his glory. It's about his name. It's about his purposes and plans, his covenant people. Those psalms cry out to God to keep his promise, to protect his chosen nation, to vindicate his name and demonstrate his justice and fulfill his plan. Those psalms are not weaponizing prayer to satisfy a personal desire for retribution. So I want to qualify this, though there may be times where such prayers are appropriate, where we can take up and use those imprecatory psalms. Nevertheless, Jesus wants us to have a heart that responds in love when we are persecuted for the sake of his name. The Apostle Paul makes the same point in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12, verse 14, Paul writes, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Verse 17, Paul writes, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. In verse 19, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's will for us as his people, and it's a hard saying. It is hard for us to love, to do good, to bless, to pray for those who would persecute us because of our loyalty to Jesus Christ. This is the principle Jesus is outlining here, but he doesn't just leave it at the level of principle. He gives a few practical illustrations of what this love looks like. Look in verse 29. He says, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now again, I want to clarify here what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying. Because some people will take this verse about turning the other cheek, perhaps one of the more famous verses in the New Testament, and people will very conveniently rip this one verse out of its context and universalize it, turn it into a sort of a complete Christian ethic that prohibits Christians from ever using force, saying that Christians can never resist the violent, to say that we should be pacifists at every level and probably shouldn't play tackle football, right? Some people want to take this verse and make an entire lifestyle out of it. Is that what Jesus intends here? I I don't believe so. Again, Remember the context of what Jesus is talking about. Specifically, this is about religious persecution for the sake of Christ. In such cases, we're called to endure it instead of fighting back. Jesus is not prohibiting self-defense in other conditions, cases of crime or indiscriminate violence. Christians are not prohibited from taking action. We know this from God's word. Exodus chapter 22, verse 2 says, If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. If you go on to read the passage, it says, If it's dark and you kill a home invader because you're not sure who he is or why he's there, the law will not punish you in that case. It's different if it's daylight and you can tell he's only there to steal a sheep. There's different punishments of the law. It's not the death penalty for that. But God's law accommodates for self-defense and protecting the vulnerable and the innocent among us. 
Jesus even speaks about this. It's not just an Old Testament thing. Luke chapter 22, later in this very gospel, in verse 36, Jesus says to his disciples, now come, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Jesus instructs them to acquire for themselves the military-grade weapons of the day. I'll just leave it at that, okay? And he didn't have them grab those swords so that they could turn the other cheek if someone tried to rob them on the highway as they were going to do ministry in another town. So Jesus is not prohibiting self-defense. He's not prohibiting protecting the innocent among us. I also want to make clear he's not prohibiting military service. Again, we use scripture to interpret scripture, and there are many places in the Bible where war is justified and even commanded. It's not just the Old Testament. Again, John the Baptist, earlier in the Gospel of Luke, preached this message of repentance, and the soldiers came to him and said, what should we do? Luke chapter 3, verse 14. And John the Baptist did not tell them, you can't be a soldier and be a Christian. No, he told them, don't extort people. Be content with your wages. Have integrity and do your job the right way. So Jesus is not prohibiting military service. He's also not prohibiting, again, the rightful use of force by the state. Some people will take this command given to individuals and say that this should shape how societies and governments and nations act. But that is not the context. These instructions are for us as individual people. Romans chapter 13 says that the state is granted the authority of the sword by God so that they can punish the wicked. So loving your enemies, turning the other cheek, does not nullify the righteous authority of the state to punish evil. This isn't erasing the need for a just society. This is not somehow undermining the sovereign authority of nations to defend their national interests. So I've just told you a bunch of things that I think it doesn't mean. So what does it mean? We can argue against the wrongful use of this scripture, but at the end of the day, it means something. And it means something that we are supposed to obey. So what might that be? Jesus says, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. To be struck on the cheek in Jesus' day is a religious insult. This is what they did to heretics, probably in the synagogue, publicly humiliating them, striking them in the face as a rebuke for turning away from what they felt was the truth. This would actually happen to Jesus when he stood before the high priest. He would be struck in the face like this. In such a context, when you're being treated like a heretic, they might even strip off your cloak, your outer garment, this very important article of clothing that also served as their covering at night. This is what kept you warm when you went to bed. To humiliate them and punish them, the religious leaders would strike them, strip away their clothing, humiliate them publicly. And Jesus is calling his followers to not fight back and to not shrink back but to patiently endure suffering for the sake of his name. Jesus says, pay the fines, take the punches, suffer loss for the sake of my name. Now, this may seem crazy. This may seem impossible for us. Why would Jesus call us to respond this way? How does this make sense? 
Once again, remember, this is one part of a larger sermon. It's not the only thing Jesus has said. Remember how he started off with the blessings and the woes. Jesus is preaching eternal glory and great reward for citizens of the kingdom that is to come. Jesus is also preaching that there is cosmic justice. There's a great reversal that is coming, judgment for the wicked, those who reject Christ, who have no sense of their need for him. So the response of love and blessing and prayer for those who persecute us, those who hate us, that's only possible if that cosmic reversal is true. It only makes sense if that is true. And we will only be able to love like this and respond like this if we really believe that that is true. Consider just for a moment the glory of heaven. Think about it. Picture what it will be like someday to be in the presence of God. This life is like a vapor. The glories of heaven are eternal. And there is no suffering on this earth that can rob us of what is coming. So it's worth it to follow Jesus, to endure the abuse and the scorn, because anything we lose here only adds to our blessing there. Jesus said in verse 23, Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. I'll also ask you just for a moment, though it's uncomfortable, to consider the reality of hell. There is no injustice on this earth that will go unpunished. I think if we could see just for a moment the weightiness of the glory that is coming and if we could catch maybe even for two or three seconds the horrors of what hell actually is like, I think that would radically change the way we respond to our enemies. It's this eternal perspective, this gratitude for grace and this awareness of God's coming judgment that's what enables us to love our enemies, to pray for them, and to seek to do them good. True disciples are to display an extraordinary love, a love that seeks the good of our enemies. There's a second description of this extraordinary love that should mark true disciples. It's in verses 30 through 34. It's a love that is truly and genuinely sacrificial. A love that is truly sacrificial. Verse 30, give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Jesus is now moving from this idea of loving our enemies to loving those who are in need. And while the principles of generosity that are outlined here, they do apply at, at sort of a high level, we're to love our neighbor. Again, I want to clarify what Jesus is saying and what he isn't saying. I don't believe Jesus is talking about panhandlers, about, about um, giving to people who are asking for a handout necessarily. Not that we shouldn't consider the goodness of doing that, but I want us to remember the kind of society Jesus was living in, the context in which Jesus is preaching. In that day and age, personal loans were outlined in God's law as the social safety net for the poor people of the land. Listen to Deuteronomy 15, 7. It says, if among you one of your brothers should become poor 
in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. These personal loans were the social safety net for people who fell on hard times, and they were intended to be repaid. However, they were forbidden to collect interest. Deuteronomy 23, 19 says, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. So God's law prescribed these personal loans with no interest as the welfare system of the day. That's how God's people were to be provided for. The poor were God's poor. And this is how he would provide for his covenant people. So what is Jesus saying here when he's talking about giving and lending and receiving? He's saying give to everyone, verse 30, who the ESV says begs from you. The New American Standard translates it asks of you. He urges them not to close their hearts when one of their neighbors, one of their brothers, comes to them in need of a loan. He says, give the loan. He says, don't go back demanding repayment so fast. Verse 30, from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. There's a spirit of grace and patience, not demanding repayment, not wearing them out every day playing the collections agency. This doesn't mean you have to say yes to every request for a handout. It's a command to offer real help to those in your sphere of influence. And Jesus saying, is saying here, listen, do not discriminate and refuse to help people based on what you think you might get out of the deal. I think what Jesus has in mind here is the situation where someone lends with the goal not of meeting a need, but with the goal of somehow thinking that in the future, the borrower will be in a position where they'll have to do me a favor, putting them in an obligation beyond the loan. You see, the return of the principle here, I think, is assumed. Jesus says we are to lend. There's different words for gifts, for charity. He's talking about a loan. The temptation here is that Sometimes we like helping people because what looks like generosity really has some strings attached. It's sort of an I'll scratch your back because I think someday you might scratch mine. That's the logic of the world. Jesus says, what's so special about that? If you give to someone, you lend to them because later you think they might be able to lend something to you when you're in need. There's nothing unique about that. Even sinners do the same. That's common. That's not the kind of love that should mark followers of Jesus. Jesus outlines the right motive for giving in verse 30. It's not getting something back. It's doing unto others what we would want them to do to us. This is Jesus outlining what's famously known as the golden rule. Verse 31, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. It's fascinating. There's actually some parallels to this in many different wisdom traditions and ancient literature. There were Jewish sayings, Greek sayings, even Chinese philosophers who said something similar to this, but they would always put it in the negative. That's a little easier to keep. Don't do to other people what you don't want them to do to you. 
That's actually simple to do. Jesus puts it in the positive, which is far more demanding. It's not enough to simply refrain from doing something to someone because I wouldn't like it if they did that to me. Jesus says, I want you to actively, proactively do for them what you wish they would do for you if the roles were reversed. We are to give and to lend out of a true and genuine love that's sacrificial. And Jesus says, you're to give and lend to all, not just those who love you. You're to give and lend to all, not just where there's some personal benefit for you. This is genuine, sacrificial love. I think the way this manifests today in churches like ours is not necessarily just with finances. We probably try to avoid getting personal loans from other people in the church. It makes things awkward, right? Proverbs even talks about the wisdom of that. But I think the way this sort of giving with an expectation of receiving happens in the church is probably with the currency of what you might call social collateral. We're kind and hospitable to people that we think will give us something we want. And it might not be their money. It might be their friendship. It might be their approval. It might be their admiration. It might be business opportunities. It might be because they have you know, a couple acres of really good deer hunting property, and I'd like to get permission to hunt there someday. Sometimes that motivates our generosity and our love towards others. This kind of loving with the expectation of receiving leads to the sin of partiality that the book of James warns us against. Is that how you love? Do you love to people based on what they do for you or what they could do for you? Is your generosity, is your service, is your compassion reserved only for those that you want to be close to that will help you climb some sort of social or professional ladder? People you want to impress? True disciples display an extraordinary kind of love, a love that's truly sacrificial, that meets the needs of others with no thought of personal benefit. There's a third description of this extraordinary love. This love is ultimately a love that reflects the character of our Father. It's a love that reflects the character of our Father. Look in verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind and ungrateful to the evil. As we saw in in several of these verses, there's a kind of love that's very unremarkable, a kind of love that's very common and ordinary. It can be found all around the world, even sinners, people who are characterized by a lifestyle of sin. People who do not know God, do not fear God, are not trying to live a life that pleases him. They operate very logically on this principle of help people out because they might be able to help you. But the kind of love that Jesus calls us to is to be the trademark of the kingdom of God. It is to be unique. It is to be distinct. It is to be uncommon and extraordinary because it's not a love that's sourced in the world. It's not a love that's modeled after anything in the world. It's not even a love that comes naturally from us. It's a love that is sourced in the very character of God. It reflects his love, his glory. Verse 35 summarizes this whole section and roots the argument in God, in the reward that comes from God, the relationship that we have with God, and the very character of God that we know is love. Why should we love our enemies and seek their good? 
Why should we be generous and sacrificial with no thought of personal benefit? Because God sees that kind of love and he honors it. Verse 35, love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Why? Your reward will be great. Listen, friends, this love that Jesus calls us to, this love that is difficult, this love that is costly, this is something that God sees, something that he smiles upon. It pleases him. Though we may bear the scorn of our enemies, though we may bear even the loss of material goods, we enjoy the smile of our Father. That should motivate us. He is pleased with such love in the hearts of his servants. Because not only does, does, does God just bless and reward this kind of love, he, he, he delights in it because it reveals who we really are. Jesus says, Great is your reward. That's not the only thing he says. He says, your reward will be great, verse 35, and you will be sons of the Most High. When we love like that, it's a reflection of our relationship with God. This language of sonship is a privileged and precious relationship that we are not God's enemies. We're even more than God's servants, although we are. He considers us as sons. This is an intimate, familial connection. And when we love the way that God loves, we look like our dad. We bear the family resemblance. This title of the Most High is an exalted title that emphasizes God's sovereign power, his absolute authority. And though God is the most high, though he is supreme over all, though he owes no man anything, what is God like? Well, he is amazingly kind to those who don't deserve it. To the ungrateful, Jesus says, God is kind. To the evil, it says that God is kind. In Matthew 5, 45, Jesus says that God makes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. That is his kindness. That is a model for the love and grace that we are to show. Psalm 145, verse 8 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. That's what God is like. And when we love other people, we love our enemies, we love those in need, we do so with humility and patience and a sacrificial spirit, we reflect the character of God. Now, Jesus is not saying that we can become sons of God by good works like love. Rather, he's saying that when we reflect his character, it, it proves that that's who we really are. It gives evidence that we are his, that we really are citizens of the kingdom because we bear that family resemblance. Paul says in Ephesians 5.1, in light of the beauty of the gospel he's unpacked, Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God. That's what it means to be godly. It's maybe a word we don't use enough. That's a godly man. That's a godly woman. We aspire to be godly. That very simply means we want to look more like our Heavenly Father, to reflect the attributes like love and kindness, compassion and grace. 
Think about how God loves. He loved us when we were his enemies. He loved us when we had no love for him. He loved you and he loved me when we could do nothing for him. Romans 5, 6 says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He continues, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God loves. 1 John 4.10 says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Friends, the love of God has been revealed to us in the gospel. That is the declaration and the definition of his love. And so our love, therefore, is to be shaped and flavored by that same gospel. It's to be our great joy and delight to become more like our Father, to reflect his love, to mimic it, to become imitators of God. So Jesus says, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. True disciples are to display an extraordinary kind of love, love that seeks the good of our enemies, love that meets the needs of the needy, the needy love that reflects the character of our Father. And as we began this morning, friends, this is a hard saying. Will you, believer, say yes, Lord, to Jesus' instructions at this very difficult point? Or will you squirm, protest, make excuses? Christ calls us today to obey him. Think just for a moment, how might our marriages change, our families change, if we loved like this? Not looking for something in return, not a love that is conditional, loving even when we're mistreated. How would our marriages change? Let me ask this, how would our church change? If we were to love even those who don't always love us, if we were to be generous and sacrificial to seek to meet the needs of those around us with no thought of what it costs us or what the return might be. Let me get even a little bit more pointed. How would your engagement with the world change? This command has always been important for God's people, but I feel like right now in our cultural moment, this is especially important for us because we live in a society where everyone is recruiting you. Everyone's recruiting you to be on their side, part of their movement, their political party, their team for whatever the issue may be. And people use outrage. They use outrage to motivate you. If they can just get you fired up and angry enough, then maybe you will be on their side and help them. Too many Christians get sucked into a kind of way of engaging in the world that does not display the character of God. 
This doesn't mean we don't engage. This doesn't mean we're not involved. It doesn't mean we don't take stands and draw lines and even cooperate with others to try to advance something in our society that would be good for our neighbors. I'm not saying to be passive. Simply saying that sort of anger at our enemies is not Christ-like. Perhaps your life has not looked very much like a true disciple of Jesus. As you look at this passage, you would say, wow, I don't really see myself in the mirror. Perhaps what characterizes you is not love, but selfishness. Using other people, not loving them. Retaliation towards other people instead of patient endurance. Manipulation. Self-serving acts of love instead of the real thing. If that describes you today, if, if, if this passage has brought conviction to you, there's one of two explanations as to why. Either you are a disobedient and wayward son or a wayward daughter who desperately needs to repent and grow because you're giving the family a bad name. Or it may mean, and I say this with a heavy heart, it might mean you're not really a Christian. Perhaps God's word today is revealing who you really are, that you are outside of the kingdom, that you do not know Christ. God is not your father, and your need today is to be converted. Your need today is to be saved. You need to be born again, because none of this describes you at all. Listen, this is the portrait of a true disciple, a genuine believer we are called to display an extraordinary kind of love. So if you realize that this looks nothing like you, then you need to today humble yourself before the Lord and repent of your sin, your rebellion. You need to cry out for mercy and come to him for salvation so that your sins can be forgiven and so that your heart can be transformed and changed by the gospel. If you just try to start loving like this and God hasn't changed your heart, you will never succeed. You will never change. You can't change. You have to be adopted into the family. You, you have to have an inner work of God's Holy Spirit before you will ever have a capacity to love and give like this. Only people who have received God's love can hope to extend it to others. There may be some among us today who need to come to Jesus for the first time and receive his gift of salvation. What about for those of us who are Christians, but we say, you know what, JD, I got to be honest, I struggle to obey these commands. Well, I would say join the club. This is convicting for all of us. None of us does this perfectly. But listen, if you truly belong to Christ, then the knowledge of your failure, the recognition that this text convicts us of sin, that should produce within us a proper grief and a sorrow over our sin. It should produce within us not a desire to justify and excuse and explain, but a real hatred for those worldly instincts, a hatred for our flesh and the sinful aspects of who we are that still need to be changed. If you are a Christian, but you see that you fall short today of what Jesus calls us to, then you also need to confess your sin and cast yourself on God's infinite supply of grace and trust him to change you. Trust him to give you the power to obey these commands. 
Some of you may hear the words of Jesus this morning and think, I know that it's the Bible, I know that it's true, but I can't do that. It's too hard. I don't know if this is really possible. It's true, this kind of love is not natural to us. In fact, this kind of love requires a reversal of our natural instincts. It means that you and I need to be rewired by God's grace. This kind of love is possible, but it's only possible through radical dependence on God. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5 says that the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence that he is active in us and we're relying on him, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We have to recognize that if we belong to Jesus, it means the old me has been nailed to the cross with Jesus. That part of me is dead. And if a little part of it twitches, I need to put another bullet in it because that's not who I am anymore. I have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, and I belong to Jesus Christ, and I must depend on his spirit so that I can love like this. We need the Holy Spirit. We need communion with Christ. Jesus says in John 15, abide in me, and I will abide in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. Listen, Christian, just as much as the unsaved person in our midst can't change their heart, guess what? Saved people can't even grow on their own either. We still need God's grace to keep changing us, to empower us and strengthen us to do what God commands. And the good news is God promises this grace to us. I love 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. It says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That's how sufficient God's grace is. All sufficiency, all times, for every good work. The good news is that God plans to, and desires to give this grace to you. He doesn't just call you to love with this extraordinary kind of love and then expect you to figure it out and do it by yourself. He promises to supply the spiritual energy and power and desire to love like this. Because his plan is to change every one of us to make us more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. The familiar passage in Romans 8 says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Will we live and act like sons of the Most High? Will we be recognizable as followers of Jesus? Will we love our enemies? Will we give sacrificially? Will we reflect the character of our Father? We must, and we can, if we will depend on his grace and submit ourselves to his will, submit ourselves to his word, God will produce this in us. He will be glorified, and your reward will be great.
Father in heaven, we acknowledge as we come to a text like this that it seems impossible to live up to this standard. Your love is infinitely perfect. Your love is steadfast. It is faithful. It is unending. It is unconditional. We recognize that so much of our sinful heart just runs in the opposite direction. I pray that you'd give us an understanding this morning of what it is that you call us to. Give us a desire to obey these commands. And we pray especially that you would give us the power. Give us the, the grace, the strength to love those who mistreat us for the sake of your name. To give generously with no thought of personal benefit. Lord, make it evident that we are your children, that we love like you. We desire that you'd be glorified in this church. And Lord, we desire that if some today in our midst have looked into the mirror of God's word and they've seen something that is completely different than how they live, completely different than the way their heart is wired, pray that you would make them aware that they are not saved, that they are not born again, that they are not truly citizens of the kingdom. They're on the outside looking in. Lord, make them know their need. Convict them and draw them to yourself. Break their stubborn will and their rebellious heart so that they might cry out to you for mercy, cry out to you for grace and forgiveness. And Lord, for we who are your children, we pray that you would sanctify us and grow us, change us. Show us ways in which we have not obeyed this commandment. Lord, we pray that you would lead us into Christ-likeness. Continue to have your way in our lives. Give us an eagerness to submit to your word, sharp edges and all, so that you might receive all the glory. Amen.